Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Genesis chapter 35. We remember that Jacob has been taking his time in making his way towards Bethel. He took some time to establish a base for his shepherding business in Succoth, and then some more time setting up a business outlet in Shechem. He's moving in the right direction, but he's not moving very fast. And that delay proves costly for his family. In verse 1, God gets him moving again in the right direction. Hear now the word of the Lord. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. It seems likely that these foreign gods that are mentioned here were probably items seized in the raid and destruction of Shechem in the previous chapter. They may also have included the idols that Rachel stole from her father. Wherever they came from, Jacob is smart enough to realize that they need to be put away. One cannot serve God, El Shaddai, Yahweh God, and keep company with petty idols. Victor Hamilton puts it this way. He says, he, Jacob, intuitively senses that the continued presence of these gods is irreconcilable with the new life he has found in Yahweh. The whole incident must be read as an illustration of Jacob's religious maturation. I think that's a very useful statement. There is a point, I think, in every believer's life when they realize that following the Lord is incompatible with certain other things in their life. Now, a new Christian probably doesn't get that. A new Christian is is capable, probably, of loving the Lord and cherishing many other harmful loyalties, affections, and allegiances. But if that person's truly saved... As that person matures, he or she will inevitably realize that God is a jealous God, that he cannot be a love or a priority or a focus. He he must be our chief, sole, singular focus, love, and loyalty. Jesus said that. He said in Luke 14, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple says, you cannot serve God and money in the same chapter. Luke 9, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Don't even let your loyalties to your dead father get in the way of your loyalty to me. Jesus demanded absolute soul, uncontested loyalty because he was God and God doesn't change. Old Testament and new, this is who he is. And, And Jacob, as Hamilton says, intuitively knew that. The new believer under the operation of the Holy Spirit comes to intuitively know that as well. Thanks be to God. Verse 5 says, And as they journeyed, a terror 
from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. Now, remember, Jacob was concerned that having massacred the people of Shechem, they would soon face a coalition of forces from neighboring towns and tribes. Here we see why that did not happen. A terror from God fell on those people. Somehow God made it clear to them that they were not to touch Jacob and his family. Maybe he gave them dreams, as he had done to Laban in chapter 31. We don't know. We just know that in some way, these people come to understand that you can't curse what God is blessing. You can't fight what God is defending, right? Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, as for Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, it's a bit of a confusion as to why her death is mentioned here and not Rebecca's. It is an odd thing that Rebecca's death and burial isn't mentioned. The suggestion of most commentators is that she had already died uh, before, long before Jacob returned to the land, and that Deborah, in a sense, is the last living link to Rebecca. That is probably true. And it is interesting, difficult, uh, hard, but true uh, that Rebecca never did see her beloved son again. The price she paid for initiating the deception of her husband was that she never saw her son again. Verse 9 goes on to say, God appeared to Jacob again when he came to Paden Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in that place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in that place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. The juxtaposition of these two paragraphs in the narrative is really interesting to me. In verses 9 to 15, God reiterates his promises and reaffirms his blessing upon Jacob. All, all the principal elements are there. There's a promise of many children, nations, even in kings. 
There is the promise of land, and also I think you could say the implied promise of intimacy with God. God has just appeared to him. Note that, right? God didn't just speak these affirmations. He didn't give Jacob a dream or cause him to hear a voice. He appeared to him. So this is encouraging. This is empowering stuff. And then in the next paragraph, Jacob experiences the worst day of his entire life. His beloved Rachel dies in childbirth. How does that all go together? How can Jacob be God's chosen one? How can he be blessed and loved and cherished? And and yet, in the next paragraph, lose the person he loved the most in all the world. How can that be? But that's faith, isn't it? Biblical faith, anyway. There is no health and wealth gospel in the Bible. There is the promise of blessing, but there is also the experience of pain. That's why they call it faith, because it sure isn't sight. Now, as for the name of the son born to Rachel, we see something of Jacob's maturity in that. Rachel called him Ben-Oni, which we think means son of my sorrow. But Jacob changes his name to Benjamin, which means son of my right hand or son of my strength. In chapter 44, verse 20, he's called son of my old age. So Jacob somehow is able to see him as a gift, as a blessing, even though he came into the world through horrible suffering, pain, and loss. That is faith. Faith isn't pretending that you never get sick. Faith isn't naming and claiming things that God never promised to give you. Faith isn't pretending that we can twist God's arm by jumping up and down or by shouting at the heavens. Faith is about seeing the purpose and power of God, even in our pain. That's faith. That's mature biblical faith. And we see it here in Brother Jacob. Jacob really is a new man. But his family is still a terrible mess. And we see that in the next paragraph, starting at verse 22. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard of it. It is hard to imagine how shocking this must have been for Jacob, particularly as it followed hard on the heels of the death of his beloved Rachel. How could Reuben do this? Why would Reuben do this? There are three main reasons suggested by biblical commentators. The first, of course, is the most obvious. Perhaps it was just an act of, of lust, an act of sexual betrayal, born of passion, right? Bil- Bilhah was older than Reuben, but such things have been known to happen. We read about female high school teachers seducing teenage students all the time. We're always shocked by these stories, but in truth, these sorts of incidents are as old as time. However, most commentators do not see this as merely an act of uncontrolled lust. Most of them understand this as an intentional act on Reuben's part. Some see this as an attempt to supplant Jacob as the head of the family. Jacob lost credibility with his sons, it is suggested, by his failure to respond to the rape of Dinah. Reuben here, by sleeping with his father's concubine, makes a play for the throne, you might say. Now, elsewhere in the Bible, sleeping with the concubine of the king, of the leader, was understood as making a play for the throne. You remember Abner sleeping with the concubine of Saul in 2 Samuel 3.7, or Absalom sleeping with his father David's concubines in 2 Samuel 16.20-22, so that could be it. But the best explanation is also the oldest. The Jews have long taught that 
what Reuben was doing here was protecting his mother. The Jews teach that Reuben was always jealous on behalf of his mother, Leah. He felt she had been slighted by Rachel and never treated as she was due. She was, after all, the senior wife. And so here, Reuben violates Bilhah, Rachel's concubine, so that she could not overtake Leah as first wife of Jacob. Bilhah would now be a living widow, like the concubines of David in 2 Samuel 16. She would likely never sleep with her husband again, and thus she would immediately drop to the bottom of the hierarchy of wives, with Leah secure at the top. That is almost certainly what is happening here, and it is yet another peg in the biblical argument against polygamy. This is the sort of distasteful nonsense that happens when you introduce rivalry into the most intimate human relationships. Verse 22 continues, Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him and paid in Aram. With the birth of Benjamin, the narrative of Jacob's family reaches a turning point. Jacob begins to fade into the background, and his sons take center stage. That there are 12 sons, note that Reuben is still listed despite his outrageous sin, is seen as significant by most Christian commentators. Derek Kidner, for example, says throughout the Old Testament and the New, 12 will be the number symbolizing the whole Israel of God. He cross-references Revelation 21, 12, and 14, the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles, close quote. Now, we made mention of that in our podcast series on the book of Revelation. Our story concludes in verses 27 to 29. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now, the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people old and full of days. And his sons, Esau and Jacob, buried him. Jacob is blessed. Jacob is reconciled to his brother, but Jacob is dealing with sorrow in his heart and trouble in his home. But God is with him. Truly, this man is a picture and a portrait of the life of faith. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the End of the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting a mission project that is very close to my heart. The Letha Daycare Outreach Project is a church-based educational program designed to teach literacy, support low-income families, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with boys and girls in rural South Africa. I've seen this project with my own eyes. I have shaken the hands of parents whose families have been helped. I have heard the songs and Bible verses out of the mouths of some of these dear children as they have been taught and helped to put their trust in the Lord. And nothing would be more gratifying to me than for you to show your appreciation for Into the Word by investing in these little ones. You can do that in one of two ways. You can give through the Into the Word app or by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Just click on the Give tab and you'll find giving options for both Canadian and American listeners. 
This is a registered project with ABWE Canada and ABWE USA. So tax receipts are available to all eligible donors. Just identify where you're listening from and click on the fund button and select Letha Daycare Outreach. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.